I came here in 2006, and I came to Seattle in 1997. Were these music-based moves? Um, I started music as a college person, um, college student, and then when I graduated, I moved to Seattle because my brother was there. I didn't really know anyone, so I didn't. That was just like a place where my brother was, and I was aware of like. Uh, obviously like Nirvana and Soundgarden and all those bands, but I wasn't really like thinking necessarily I was going to be a musician. I was sort of like just post-college. I had a degree in geology and was like, I'll just move where my brother is, stay in his house for a while and like figure out. They have rocks in Seattle. (laughs) I got a job at the Pacific science center, which is like this place where they teach science to kids and, I was a science demonstrator, so I like went into the bat cage and like brought out bats and showed kids bats and snakes and like blew up hydrogen balloons and stuff. And it was like it was actually a performing job because I had to perform in front of kids. It sounds like a pretty fun gig. It was. It was. I don't think I know any geologists, but it strikes me as maybe not the most engaging job on a daily basis. Yeah, I think. You have to be like, I mean, geology people usually become professors or they they go into like the oil industry, like oil and gas, because that's about, it's like you study rocks and understand where. Fracking and. Yeah, yeah. Or you could go into like environmental science uh, and policy stuff. But I realized in my mid 20s that I did want to be a writer of some kind or a musician or both. And so I started when I moved to Seattle, I had been writing songs for a while and been in bands, but I made a new band and I started playing open mics. I ran an open mic and then I started, yeah, just playing around town, playing at coffee shops and stuff. And one thing led to another. And I realized like, Oh, I want to be a musician for real. I want to make this my thing. And I always had to have side jobs for a long time. Like I I taught music, I taught guitar and songwriting and stuff on the side. And I worked as like a tree, Christmas tree seller and like a gardener and an assistant in an office and just random stuff until I could quit my day job. But that didn't really, I taught and did side teaching gigs until my mid thirties. So part of realizing that you wanted to actively pursue music was giving up on the geology thing. Is that right? Yes. I actually... I have a journal that I kept. I was 21 and I was in China because I, I also studied Chinese in college and I was a field assistant on, on a geology trip in China. So I was like using both skills, my Chinese and my geology to learn about the the mountains over there in the Taklamakan, on the edge of the Taklamakan desert, which is like right near Tibet. And it's like a high desert. I was over there. I brought my guitar and I, all I wanted to do was write songs. I did not want to walk around looking at rocks. I remember writing in my journal, like, I want to be a writer. I don't want to be a geologist. This sucks. And then I I quit geology. <laughs> what drew you to it in the first place if you realized that it just really wasn't for you ultimately? I grew up in a family of scientists. And my dad's a physics professor. My brother got a environmental science degree and then a PhD in oceanography. My mom's also an academic and a teacher. So there's like this 
And we were all outdoor people. So like I grew up in Colorado, we were always camping, doing these big mountain trips, like climb the mountain to the very top and see the view and like look at the stars and the, eat the wild strawberries like year in, year out, take the canoe trips, all this stuff. And it was great. It was great, great upbringing. And so it felt natural to me to gravitate towards a science and then an outdoor science. And, and geology is good for that. But after actually doing it for a while in college, I realized that it was too esoteric for me. Like I just didn't care enough. And I felt this, like when I started writing songs that was around that same time, I was like 19. I felt like truly charged up by it and really alive and like really just like in the flow of creativity when I started writing songs and like kind of like, I was like, this is my thing. Like, this is like puzzle solving and I can solve these puzzles. And it was really fun for me. So I think it was the combination of realizing like I have fun writing songs and playing guitar um, and maybe I could get good at it. I was actually a terrible performer in the very beginning. I was so terrified that I couldn't really do it. And that was a real kick in the pants. Like my first open mic, hands shaking so much they fell off the strings, like couldn't get a word out. Like, And that was like, oh, wow, you, you can write, but you can't perform for shit. So maybe you should start playing more out, you know, like try it, see if you can get over this fear. And slowly I have, I mean, I still have stage fright, but it's not debilitating anymore. Is there a threshold that you cross once you get over that initial, like, I can't even hold on the guitar to actually enjoying the process of performing? I slowly was able to get there, but it took years. And um, and there are still nights where it's not enjoyable, but mostly it is. You must have really wanted to pursue it if, if a large aspect of it was kind of miserable. I think that was what actually compelled me to do it. Actually, it was like that competition with myself. Like, oh, you can't do this at all. And usually when you try to do things, you can do them. But this one you're terrible at. So can you rise above whatever it is that's making you so terrified to be able to share some of the stuff that you like are so passionate about writing. I guess without sort of the immediate feedback of performing, how did you know that you were really onto something on the writing side of things? I just, it wasn't that I knew I was onto something. I just loved doing it. And so it's like, I had never ran out of ideas. I always had something. It, they were like joke songs in the beginning. Like I wrote a song about my geology professor. I wrote a song about my boyfriend's nose. I wrote a song, you know, they, they were like kind of joke folk songs where I was playing around with language and just having fun and people, and yeah, I was sharing with people. They thought they were cute, but then as time went on, I was able to like, well, another big part of it was like learning about Riot Girl. Cause I, I grew up in a town where there was no live music and certainly no girls playing in bands. And so when I went to college and people exposed me to like Bikini Kill and the riot girl scene in Olympia, even though I was in Minnesota, we were aware of what they were doing. And I was like, what you can write songs about this. And like, you can smash the patriarchy with music. Like, yeah, (laughs) that's a good twofer. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, Oh, this is multifaceted. This is. And then along with that came the awareness of the DIY culture around that scene. Like you don't need a manager, you know, just do it yourself or, you don't need a booking agent. Just play at your friend's house. And like, let's, let's screen print these posters and this artwork ourselves. And let's 
like figure out how to make a group seven inch split seven inch and let's um, like record in the college, like recording studio. We were lucky to have a recording thing at the, at our college, but we just, you know, that punk ethic of do it yourself infused my, my life and continues to, in the sense that I, you know, run my own label. I have a manager that runs it, but I own all my own publishing. Like that's important to me to be able to have independence and sovereignty over my, my catalog. And I was, I mean, I did go to the major labels for a while. I I was on none such for a few years and then I got dropped, but in the end, like, and they were great. They gave me a great platform to find more, you know, more fans and more people to hear my music. But ultimately I feel really aligned with that initial, that like early kind of like punk rock, do it yourself ethic and like way of running a business. So you know, it was like all those different elements together that attracted me to the whole thing. I talked to a lot of cartoonists on the show, artists on the show, and and that realization, you know, like people growing up reading comic books and only knowing like Superman and Batman exist, and then suddenly realizing there's, there's this whole world out there to break into. Without those sort of examples to look at, you just start constructing all these artificial barriers for yourself. You know, it seems like actually pursuing this as a a, a career is an impossible task. For sure. And I mean, it's kind of felt that way to me, but like, like, cause I had a boyfriend who was in that scene and a really talented artist and musician. And he was friends with a lot more musicians and bands than I was. And he grew up in a town that had a lot of bands and he was like, you can't make a living as a musician. And he wasn't saying like, Laura, you can't make a living as a musician. He was like, one cannot make a living as a musician. Temper your expectations. Yes. And I was like, well, I disagree. So I'm going gonna- <laughs> to just go and try to prove you wrong, which I did. It's not like I'm um, like spoiled in riches over here, but I, I have I have made a career out of music, but it's hard. And I kind of like wonder sometimes what I would tell. I have a younger friend who's a musician, poet, woman, and she's like doing all kinds of cool stuff but i i sort of like if someone asked me how to do it how do you break in now i'd be like i don't have no idea now like the world the diy world like the band camp and like soundcloud and all that however people are figuring out how to get seen on tiktok like that's just i have no idea how a musician breaks through anymore it's always fascinating to me to talk to to artists musicians especially who have kids and sort of walking the line of trying to encourage them creatively, but also being incredibly pragmatic and realistic about how difficult it is. Yeah. I mean, they don't understand that. Because they, they've seen you and I mean, and you know, and your, your ex is in music too. So like their frame of reference are people who are able to make mm-hmm. a living doing music. Yeah. I think, I mean, they're, yeah, I don't know whether they're going to want to do anything creative there's they're nine and 12 now so it's the jury's still out but i mean they are very creative artistic people so i could imagine they might try but i think that the their world is it's just going to be so different than the world that i grew up in in terms of how how people do things but i don't want to squish them and be like you can't do this it's impossible because obviously it's not impossible but i want yeah like you said tempering expectations it's a it is a fine line so coming from a science family going to school for geology and studying 
Mandarin, is that right? Mm-hmm. What is that initial conversation with your own parents like? They, I, I remember, well, I had written this in the journal. I was worried about what they would think because I was like serious about being a writer and in my early 20s. And when I told them, my mom was like, I knew that all along. And, and, but I was really worried about what my dad was going to think. And, and apparently he was cool with it. So I think I was definitely worried. And then for many years, my mom kept asking me when I was going to get a different job. And she's like, you could be a teacher because she's a teacher. It makes sense. I'm a good, I am a teacher, actually. I, I like to teach, but I'm not a teacher in a school and I don't have her schedule. But she stopped asking me that. And I'm glad because I don't want a different job. I like my job and they're proud of me. You know, they are, they are happy with what I'm doing. And, but sometimes stuff comes up. Like my mom didn't like my new album cover. I'm like, well, I'm almost 50. I can decide. (laughs) You know, this stuff is probably gradual, but do you have a sense of when it clicked for your mom that it was no longer her parental duty to continue to ask you these questions? (laughs) I think at a certain point I told her, I don't remember, but I can, I, I, there have been times where I've just set a boundary. Like, we're not going to just stop asking you that. Like, this is my life, you know, but I don't remember if that was, if I set that boundary or not. But I think honestly, like at a certain point they were just like, wow, she's for real. Like she's touring all over the world and she's like, this is album number eight or whatever it was. And yeah, she's just happening. This is a thing. This isn't something we need to worry about. And, and, but I can understand why a parent would worry. Like, it is unless you unless you are lucky or i don't know just work your ass off for like 50 years it's it is hard to make a steady income as an artist so i can see why they would be concerned but for now they are really great supportive people and actually practically very helpful to me and have been all along in terms of like coming on tour occasionally helping with the kids when i go to europe this summer, they're going to have the kids for 10 days. So it's very important if you are a parent, especially a single parent, to have that village vibe helping with the kids. And if you want to do any kind of touring, and public performing. And so I'm lucky to have them. And my brother as well. Having had the, the background that you did, so having been through school, uh, did you have... Did you have a backup plan? You know, did you feel like these are things that I could potentially fall back on? I do like to teach music. And so I did always supplement until my mid thirties with teaching. So I knew that if my songs dried up or no one cared to listen anymore, no royalties, whatever, I could always teach and that that wouldn't be a hardship. It'd be kind of like, it's kind of fun. So private lessons, you know, on guitar or piano or banjo or songwriting. So, I mean, and I still can do that if I, I do sometimes do like zoom group workshops, which is fun. And I taught through Stanford for a while. Stanford's, continuing education series online classes but um i do like to teach so but for the backup all along i was like you can teach and that can be the the backup until eventually my royalties and passive income were enough that i didn't need to do that anymore. i feel like being able to speak mandarin is a pretty good skill to have in your back pocket though have you have you kept up on it no it's terribly it's terribly lost i i mean that was 25 years ago so i did I did go to Shanghai for a gig once and I was able to like refresh a little, but I was like, damn, this, this is totally not here at all the way it was. But I mean, maybe like really far down the line, I could see 
getting more into it again because it is a really cool language. And yeah, it is practical. It's practically useful language to know. Increasingly practical, <laughs> I would say. Your initial time in China you spent as a translator? Well, it was weird because I was hired to go to be a translator on this geology trip, you know, just general translation when we were traveling. But when we got over there, we realized no one speaks Mandarin over there because it's this very remote part of Northwest China where there are Uyghur people and they speak a Turk. They speak Uyghur, which is like a Turkish language. So there was really no point to me being there at all. <laughs> is this the proximity where all of the uh, the horrible Uyghur stuff is happening yes, at the moment? Yes, yes, and that that was not there were there was political tension there then, but this was twenty seven years ago, so it wasn't as bad, and it wasn't like a dangerous place for us to be. Granted, you didn't speak that specific language, but but you got the sense that these people were being treated poorly. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah, so you're from Colorado Springs, is that right? Mm -hmm. I spent two days there for work once many years ago because NORAD is based (laughs) out of the mountain there. And they do the Santa tracking out of Colorado Springs. The what track? You don't know about the Santa tracking? No, what is that? And they've been doing this, I think, at least like since the 60s. So So NORAD is based out of the mountains there. So every Christmas, kids can call on Christmas Eve, they can call this phone number there's a like a youtube live stream now but ask where in the world santa is and norad gives like a live update of where in the world santa is as he's delivering presents over the course of of christmas eve so it's like an elaborate live lie that's correct (laughs) i hope there are no young children listening 20 minutes into this conversation because they're going to be very disappointed so so i you know i've been there in, in in boulder and denver i feel like i didn't spend enough time to really like appreciate Colorado Springs. It's not known for its like music or arts, but certainly there were guys playing in bands, but not women, not girls. I didn't see any girls playing in bands, so it didn't really cross my mind. I have other friends, women musician friends who were like, I don't care that I don't see any girls in bands. I'm starting a band, you know, but I wasn't, I never made that leap till college. You were at least like playing guitar at the time. You just didn't pursue it any further. Yeah, and I didn't really study it or anything until later. But yeah, I was aware of guitar playing. And when I was 18, my brother showed me some chords and some, like, he was a good influence in terms of, like, three years older. So he he was just, like, aware of cool music all the time. And, I, and so he was, like, helping me figure out what's going on with basically like, pop music. But some folk music, too. I remember I um, had... I had Joni Mitchell's Blue album. I don't know why. Maybe my parents had it, but that was a good thing to listen to because there's just so many amazing songs on there. You know, the Reality Bites joke about them sending Frampton Comes Alive like in the mail to everybody. Yeah. I feel like for a certain generation, Joni Mitchell's Blue kind of fits that as well. Yep. Your parents didn't have to be super into music to have a Joni Mitchell record. Exactly. You had, I, th- I think, maybe jokingly suggested what might happen if the songs dried up at some point. But I- I've heard you describe the process of putting a record together, and it sounds like you do dozens, if not hundreds, of songs per record. Yes. Yeah, and they're not all distinctly different songs. Like, I tried to stop the nonsense of, like, excessive writing on this one, and but I still got up to, like, 85 but um, the reason it gets so big is because when I'm writing, I can like have my filter on very low. So it's like a low bar 
and then that way the song gets done. Like I'm just like writing, writing, writing. Oh, this sounds cool. Okay, great. It's done. And then the next day I listen, I'm like, that's totally stupid. You have to start again, but those lyrics are interesting. So grab those lyrics and then put it into better music. And then that, so there's like now two songs, but they're, they're both songs and they're done, but they are really different versions of the same song. So that's why it gets so big. It's not like they're all distinctly different everything songs. Why is that a stupid process? <laughs> it's, well, I just ask because it's worked at least to a certain extent so far, right? It is. It's a great process. It's just very inefficient because, but the thing is, it is my process. So I come from, again, this like science background, like high achieving academic brainy people. It's like A to B, get the, get the job done. And, you know, like, certainly I have that side to myself and I love finishing things. I love like the sense of accomplishment, but it doesn't fit into the whole, like, it's highly inefficient. But the reason it works is because I have the gift of a low filter. So I have the gift of not criticizing myself too much. And I've noticed like, and I'm grateful to that because then the songs can come out easily a lot over and over. And like the main problem that I have with my students when I have taught over the years is that they are so self-critical. They can't even get a song out. They can get like one verse out and then they're just like in, they're like in a heap in the corner, you know, like they just can't get the spirit up to finish a song or commit to multiple verses and a chorus. You know, I think that's, that's like, there's like a dark side is like I spend years and highly inefficient hours doing this stuff that I never use. But the thing is I am using it. Like eventually those lyrics eventually morph into the, the final presentation of the song that actually I really like and other people like. When we talk about writing music, I think we kind of have maybe done artists a disservice by romanticizing this idea of like of the muse or this idea of, you know, all the all these stories you hear of like all these great songs that were just written because people were were ch- channeling them and that then and that they were 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 that it was an effortless process. When you get too too hung up on that, it's easy to get in your own head and to decide that today is not one of those days and it's not worth sitting down and trying to write a song. Yeah, I take more of the like grunt work, just sit down and do it again and again approach and. Um, other people have different ways, but I, I feel like that um, Beatles documentary helped illuminate to people how, you know, kind of like grunt worky their process was and how sort of like meandery and like it, it was a combination of just like sitting around and then, oh, something's coming and then just like morphing and working and working and working and then paring it down. And, and like, I liked watching that to be reminded that, you know, it's one thing to have this polished hit out in the world and it seems like it's been there forever and it's another thing to watch it come to life in a very like circuitous strange and also like grunt work kind of way it's a good point and i think that these people that you sort of hold up as being these great musical geniuses the fact that like even they have to go through the process these processes i think probably is is affirming ultimately yeah and it's humanizing it's humanizing because they are they are humans. And yes, they have they have 
great um, creative power, but it's nice to see its humble roots. Do you feel like your science background and, and being from a scientific family has given you almost sort of an analytical approach to the songwriting process? No, I don't see it as coming into the process that much. I, what it does is it's like I have charts, like I have lots of organization stuff going on all the time in terms of like, all right, here are the 10 that I like for this album. Now we're going to practice. And so then I'll make a chart. Just keep myself accountable. Like, are you practicing? Because you have a session coming up. You better know how to play this stuff. And so like, I'll be very methodical in in my practicing. Lately, I've been less methodical in the practicing, like preparatory practicing for recording. But I think the the science side comes in in terms of like just being very um, hands on in terms of managing my career and like understanding my business and also um, organized in terms of like having everything in folders online and like things are dialed fairly well in terms of like knowing like chord charts, like here's everything that we need to do, just like organized. Like I feel like the science side of my brain keeps me organized because a lot of artists sort of like are in disarray. So I, I think that science background helps me stay like on point. I think you described it earlier as solving a puzzle. And I like that description because to me, I mean, I'm not a songwriter, but I, I am a writer professionally. And to me, the most satisfying moment of writing is always whenever you have these two seemingly disparate ideas and you're able to kind of find the through line there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like there's, there's like overlap too, in terms of, like, because I spent so much time in nature with science people, I have like that sort of vocabulary on my tongue in terms of like using images from nature or metaphors easily. And in a way that I feel is authentic. And also there was another thing about science like, oh, science can be extremely creative too, right? Like if you're, like there, it's not like you have your science brain and you have your artistic brain. When you're really into the depths of any pursuit, I feel like it's it can be very deeply creative. And the science, in my mind, that would be like, like pondering like how gravity works or the Big Bang or like the origin of the universe and stuff like that. It's like highly creative. So I think like, like breaking down binary a little bit between like just a scientist and just a uh, creative person or artist, like they they can overlap. I think part of the distinction that people tend to draw and I don't know, maybe there's something to this, but that obviously in science there, you know, there are rules, you know, that, that, that you are following at least sort of like the foundations that were laid down ahead of you. And I think people would, would like to believe that there are no, specific rules to songwriting yes i mean but well it's a great point to bring up like what is a song um, oh we're going there okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean because you're following rules like you're you might be rhyming that's a rule or you might be using english i heard you in an interview and, and, and this was interesting and I, and I think this is related you know but i i know that you like for example have been writing poetry and that you were in a poetry group and that you are sort of part of that pursuit is almost trying to figure out where the line is and if there is a line between poetry and songwriting. Yeah. And I mean, I, 
also really enjoy instrumental music and I also really enjoy like the Cocteau Twins where there's like vocals, but it's not English. Like I think all that stuff is really interesting. It's almost like, like operatic. Or it's just more like vocal sounds instead of uh, a message in the lyrics. And I think all that stuff is, there's just so much to explore there. And I could see myself going in, in any number of those directions, like no lyrics or made up lyrics you know, or a book of poetry where it's all words, you know, like, I think there's just so much to explore. And I'm I, you're the thing is, you're never done. You're never done learning about any of this stuff. Did you make your own oblique strategy cards? Kind of? Yeah, I had seen those, but then I, I refined it or like changed it around to my own method. So it's like three decks in a pack, you can buy them on my website. It's for writers, songwriters, so it could be a songwriter, prose writer or poet. And you pull one from each deck and then read the card and follow the prompt. It's a it's a prompt system. And so I I just I made it up for myself to surprise myself and then I teach it to others to kind of help them un- when they're feeling blocked. It's good for like writer's block because it's a prompt telling you what to do. And you you follow the three that you get. They're random prompts. You follow them, finish your piece in that day and move on, do it again the next day. You know, I was going through a sort of a I'm still kind of going through it, but I was going through a point in my life where I felt like I, you know, I needed to make a decision and I was asking people, you know, what they do to kind of prompt the universe to like, to help, you know, move you in a direction if, if it's, if it's not doing it on their own. And somebody had suggested something akin to oblique strategies and somebody else suggested tarot. And Mm -hmm. it really dawned on me at, at the moment that there's a way in which they really fill similar role and that tarot isn't like, strictly fortune telling, but it it is, it's more about how you sort of interpret what you're pulling at random. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's similar to that, what these cards are. Um, So did the tarot help you make your decision? No, I mean, you know, I I think like a lot, I don't know. I think what a lot of this stuff comes down to is I think you probably know what the decision is. And I think you're looking for validation. And I don't know if you can necessarily find validation in a stack of cards. Yeah, I think though you can, it can be like a pointer that shows you what your decision should be. Like, it's like, if you really don't, you know, it's just like, you know what the decision is and you're looking for, for more information to tell you if you're actually making the right choice, if it's a big decision. So yeah, I, I, I certainly none of it's like a magic wand or anything, but they can be helpful tools. Did your cards play a role in this latest record? Not in this one. Although, actually, yes, because I was teaching a workshop. And in the workshop online, we do Zoom workshops that are like two hours long. We break out into solo sessions and we all write a song or a poem or a prose piece in that 30, 40 minute session. And then we come back and share. And actually, the first song on the album I wrote in that session. So Autumn Song, I wrote in one of the sessions, which... I don't use the cards anymore. I used them during the lookout, which was an album from a few years ago, but because I was using them to like jar myself forward. But um, it is, they did come into play on this one because I randomly wrote that song. And I was like, wow, that's really cool that this song I tossed off on a, in a workshop ended up first album, uh, first track on the album. I had read you describe, and I think even mentioned this on Twitter, that there's a sense in which the new record feels like a, a debut. And, you know, there's, there's a way in which, there's an obvious way in which that is true and that you sort of, you know, you obviously parted ways with your longtime producer who was 
also your partner. Did it feel also profoundly different from just the act of actually like writing and creating the songs? Well, yeah, because I mean, not really the writing, but, but he was like in my creative process, like almost every stage for 20 years. So in that way, and it wasn't like he was like this overlord demanding person. It was just the dynamic that developed. And he would like, I would kind of defer. I would just be like, in a way, I just didn't want to decide like which songs to pick. You pick, I don't care, you know? And, and then you just figure out what we're doing. I'm busy with the kids. You know, it's just like kind of almost like an old school, like division of labor, like family business. You do the production, I'll do the writing. So, but from the writing up, from the writing side, I always was independent and like in my own mind with it. But like from the song selection to the production to everything else, he was involved. And so that was like a lot of soul searching for me. Like, well, what do I want to say? And which songs am I going to pick? And like, what am I trying to do here? Like, why am I even doing this? Am I even doing this for me? Or was that our thing? Or was that his thing? Like, where do I fit in? with music i don't understand and so it took a long time you mean you were having like an actual existential crisis but just about you yourself as an artist and this thing that you've been doing for most of your life yes so i was like you know what you have to do this because your future self will be super pissed if you don't and even though it's hard you have to get into the weeds of like difficult emotions and vulnerability to speak your truth about this complex situation you have to do it. And if you do it, someone is going to have a better day because of it. Because a lot of people go through this divorce with kids. It sucks. And it's also really cool. So you can find a way to talk about it. A, for yourself, your future self, and B, for them. Somebody else out there is going to get, like, get through dinner or, like, get through a hard morning listening to that song or something. Feel seen or feel like somebody gets it. And feel like I get it and then they feel less alone. And so those were the two main reasons why I did it. And then it was just a lot of learning, like to trust my gut instead of deferring, just being like, well, you decide, you know, like, I don't know. You know, it's like, no, you have to know, you have to decide which songs are going on. What's the instrumentation? What's the album art? Like what, who is your producer? How do you co-produce? How do you produce? How do you record? Like I recorded one of the songs. I didn't make it through to making the whole record, but, and I'm, I actually don't aspire to become a professional recording person, but I was proud that one of them, one of my recordings did make it on. Can't help but sing. I think, you know, it just really forced me to grow up and be like an actual full formed independent artist and I learned a lot and I'm proud of it and I feel glad that I did it even though it wasn't easy so you're not necessarily somebody who throws himself into their work when they're going through a difficult time um I I tried to write about it but I didn't like the songs for the first year and then after that I was also going through a very complicated divorce, took 18 months and then selling a house, moving kids across town twice. So that's all very, and a pandemic. So it's like kind of amazing. I feel like kind of amazing. I did it at all, but it did. And I had a lot of help. I had a, 
nanny helping me, Lori, who was amazing, and my parents and brother helped too a lot. And other friends, like close friends, community, like you can't raise kids without that. And you can't be an artist without that. So I give props to all of them. After the first year, I was like, this, these songs aren't, they're not working for me. But then I kept going. And then I was like, eventually more, I guess I had had enough distance from the difficulty to start to process it more um, in a way that felt more like deep or complex, which is kind of like what I was struggling with in the beginning. And I couldn't get there. What is it that really wasn't clicking the first time around? It just felt like sort of sad sap. Like, what was me? Poor me. You're wallowing. Yeah. Which is fine, but that's not the material that I wanted to really ultimately put out, you know? That role that you talk about of music, uh, of you of you creating music that will help people go through something similar, did music play that role for you as you were going through this? Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I didn't seek out divorce records per se, but... And this, and like, in a way, my other record was more of the divorce record. This is like what comes out. This is like the rejuvenation, like Phoenix rising from the ashes record. But like, so people have different takes on what a divorce record is. But certainly they're, they're one of Bjork's records. I can't remember which one was about her family breakup and her breakup with her long-term partner. And they had a kid and all this and. That was helpful, you know, just to hear her take on it. And but a lot of times, like I try, I'll I'll like take solace in music that's not like my music when I'm writing my own music. Like I'll listen to instrumental, ambient, or whatever music, and and get solace from music that way more than like seeking out people who are going through a similar situation. But I do know that um, there's like relatable stuff on here for people who are going through what I went through on this album. And I, I, I hope really hope it does help because that's one of my goals as an artist is to connect, you know, and to help people in some small way, small or large so that I can feel useful and like there's a purpose to the whole thing beyond just helping me because obviously it helps me 2018 I'm, I'm sort of like you know like 2018 was an interesting year for you creatively so that i guess that would have been two records ago now but you did you did both a kids book and we're doing a podcast mm-hmm. around the same time what was happening in your life that you were kind of trying out all these new disparate projects well often i'll hit a wall after making a record and i'll just be like i gotta do something else and with the kids book that was about a musician, woman musician, Elizabeth Cotton, who I love. And that was a really kind of intense project to, to figure out how to do well, but I was happy I did that. And then the podcast was about women musicians who are also mothers and like how they juggle all the things that are required to do parenting and being a professional musician. And that was also really cool for, again, just to break out of the kind of like, grind of being a songwriter and like making records over and over it's nice for me sometimes to just do something else for a while so right now i'm painting i'm doing like small scale watercolor acrylics and also i'm doing big big canvases because when i moved into my new house i had to decorate didn't have a lot of art 
was like, well, I'll just make some paintings. And then I was like, oh, painting. This is so fun. There are all these like painting tables in the basement of the house. They didn't move them out. So I had all this workspace all of a sudden to make art. And now I'm doing that as kind of a way to just take the edge off and the pressure off of music. Because I feel like if there's too much pressure and edge on me with music, I just won't do it. And if, and also I'm very curious about the world and like all the different ways people express themselves in different art forms. So right now it's painting and they'll probably switch to something else down the road. The painting of, I guess, four things. Uh, the painting is the one that you, obviously you make music that you expect to put out there. Uh, when you start writing a book, you know, you're, you know, you're going to collaborate with somebody and put it in the world. And obviously when you record a podcast, that's going out, but painting is the one thing that you can really, really just do for yourself and not necessarily show to anybody else. I did that for a year. And then I was like, I have a lot of paintings. Maybe I should put some on (laughs) Instagram and see if someone will buy one (laughs) because I want to get rid of them so I can get more stuff, more art supplies. (laughs) And, but yeah, for a year, I just did it in private. It's great. And I could always go back to that, but now I'm sharing them on Instagram and I'm having a show and people are buying them and it's fun. It's not high pressure. It's not like high stakes or anything. It's just a, like a kind of like side hustle thing that's kind of fun everybody started a podcast during the pandemic Mm -hmm. i you know i'm surprised that that isn't something that you reconnected with i found it difficult like for me most of the time now anything i'm doing needs to make money and so i i do i will like and podcasting is not for you (laughs) i will dabble i'll dabble in painting and stuff just to make paintings for my house or something but then after i made enough i was like hey maybe i could Maybe I could make a little money here that would then justify like buying three hundred more dollars of art supplies. But um, yeah, with the podcast, I did have a manager and I had, did have a producer, and so I had to pay them. And then the manager went and got the um, the like sponsorships, but it didn't really pencil out. And for me, as a single mom, things need to pencil out money wise, or else I'm not going to do them. Do you feel like having kids just just generally like even before the split was kind of a a motivating factor when it comes to like actually making a living doing what you're doing? Well, I, I mean, I, let's see. Um, I waited to have kids until I, I had a steady income from my music. So I didn't have to go tour or didn't have to make another record. I was like making passive income from my songs and stuff. So I want because I didn't want to have this like intense pressure like you have to make this work or else or else you can't have kids because I always wanted to have kids and I was glad I had kids but I also didn't want it to be like hyper pressurized but they do kind of, they do pressurize your life and so it's just a matter of balance like yeah you need to make you need to make it work because you have kids but don't stress yourself out so much that you get like completely crushed by the weight of the whole thing and just like go get a day job. It's unavoidable that they're going to, you know, at very least impact your ability to like go on a long tour. For sure. For sure. I mean, with men, typically they would just go and the woman would stay home with the kids. But there are women who, who have like supportive partners or, or arrangements at home where they can leave. But I opt to, I have, the kids most of the time and I opt to not do those long tours. Although I am doing a two week tour when my ex has them for the summer. And then I'm, my parents are helping and my brother is helping for the three week tour in the year in Europe and they're coming over with the babysitter. So it's very complex. It's logistically like hellish, but I, that's where the science side comes in. Like keep it organized, you know, it's organized. Sure. And it's, and it's been like, you know, effectively been two years without you being able to do that. So like you really need to, 
kind of make the most of it now. Exactly. Something I'm always curious about, and obviously the last record was emotional in that way. This has a lot of that too. Going out and playing these songs that come from the, this really like honest and raw place, is there a concern of having to, you know, in a sense, kind of have to rehash that every night? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the short answer. <laughs> um, I will cross that bridge when I come to it. I found that like, I don't know. That's a great question. I haven't really thought deeply about it. I mean, I've felt some angst about it. Like, oh, I have to go do this. But also, like, there's, like, that song, Ring Song, about pawning my wedding ring. I actually have, like, a funny banter thing I do for that because I've been playing a few shows and, like, I can find the light side of it now. I can find the light side and, like, make humor out of it. And I, I like doing that. So I think, like, that will offset any kind of, like, re-traumatization that's happening while I have to play this song again and like relive the, the feelings of it. That is really dark, pawning your wedding ring. Well, I had heard, and I'm just giving one caveat that my kids are downstairs, so I don't want to go get the charger, but like, I hope my computer doesn't die. If it does, then I'll go get the charger and we'll finish up properly. But I had heard two folk songs over the years where the people are pawning their pet wedding rings. And one was Elizabeth Cotton and one was like this obscure banjo tune. And I was like, oh, okay, I don't want this ring anymore. It's not a fancy ring or anything. I just want to get rid of all the old shit and like bring in the new. So I was like, all right, Google, where's the nearest pawn shop? Found one. I was like, I'm going to write my wedding ring pawn shop song. Like I'm going to continue on in this like obscure folk tradition. So I found, I found the um, silver lining pawn shop. I was like, that's such a great name. I'm going there right now. <laughs> They're banking on people going because of that name. Yeah, it was really good, but it was also perfect for just like lyrical material, you know? And so, yeah, that song turned out really cool and it's pretty intense. It's like kind of, psychedelic lyrical lyrically but then grounded in this pawning of the ring i i'm happy with that <laughs> 